I'm Doug Fullington. I'm manager of audience education here at PMB. This is our second program of the season. Three works, two that were made for us, and one that's kind of been remade for us. Uh, all interesting works. They get more interesting as the night goes on. They're so interesting that I had to make some notes for myself for this talk, which I don't usually do, but now they've uh, started to record these for podcast, which makes me, <laughs> it always lives in my brain as I'm talking. So hello out there in podcast land, and I will try to do right by you. So as usual, let's talk about these in the order that we'll see them. Really happy to answer any questions. Some of you may have seen the dress rehearsal last night. Some of you may have read the previews are followed along on the website with things we've posted. We've tried to get a lot of information out there. So I'll just uh, share with you what I know. I'm trying to be really careful, especially with Plot Point, and I think Afternoon Ball, too, not to review these ballets for you, because you need to see them just as I need to see them, and we form our own thoughts. But I'm going to try and give you information about them, and we'll just, we'll just go along that way. But we start with something that you've seen recently, if you're a subscriber, and that is Her Door to the Sky, which was made for us last year, 2016, by Jessica Lang. Uh, Jessica Lang also choreographed The Calling, the solo piece that we have in the repertory. And she made Her Door to the Sky for us as a co-commission with Jacob's Pillow in Beckett, Massachusetts, the famous uh, dance festival. And we premiered it there in August of 2016. Then it was in the rep this spring. And it's back now. And you may say, well, why is it back so soon? Well, we're also going to take it to Paris uh, next July. And a lot of this Paris repertory is in the season repertory because it means we'll have it ready. We have, to take, we have to take a number of ballets to Paris and perform them in a very short amount of time. So having them in the repertory and in the dancers' bodies and in the crew, crews, minds, and bodies, and so forth really helps. So we're going to preview the Paris tour for you as we go through this season. And I'll point those ballets out as we go along. So tonight, that's Her Door to the Sky. Uh, it's a work for 10 dancers, five men, five women. And Jessica was inspired by Georgia O'Keeffe, particularly the Patio Door series. Uh, O'Keeffe had a house in the Southwest, and she was just obsessed with the, the door of this house even before she acquired it. And she bought the house, and she painted a whole series of Patio Door paintings. And that's what Jessica was inspired by. And Jessica designed the set for this. It has sort of an adobe look with a door, if you will, but kind of functions as a window or a door that's not on the ground. Uh, and then there are smaller windows very close to the ground, and uh, we see the dancers in those, the dancers come through the larger opening and so forth. But the idea is that she's inspired by O'Keefe. We see the colors of the Southwest in the costumes by Braden McDonald as well, the beautifully dyed uh, costumes that have a lot of movement, the women have nearly floor-length dresses with a lot of fabric. It's a lot of weight, and then when they move, the fabric really follows them. So it definitely is part of the choreography of the, of the piece, and Jessica had that in mind when she was working. It's not a story to this ballet, but definitely one woman comes forward as the protagonist halfway through. And is she Georgia O'Keeffe? Maybe she is, uh, but definitely she, she is the, the lead uh, for a good part 
part of this ballet, and that will be Sarah Ricard Orza, who, uh, along with Elizabeth Murphy, they kind of co-premiered, co-created this role. Uh, along with this American theme, Jessica was thinking she'd pick music by Aaron Copeland, but then she found out that O'Keefe didn't like Copeland. <laughs> so that was out. <clears throat> so she went in search of something that had the same kind of open, if you will, open harmonic feeling that a lot of Copeland's uh, Americana music has. And interestingly enough, she found it in an early Benjamin uh, Britten work, uh, The Simple Symphony, which is a string work for uh, in four movements. And in that work, Britten used, in each movement, two melodies that he had composed essentially as a child and written down and kept. And these are incorporated into the music. And it's a, it's a beautiful piece. And it does have that similar feeling, similar ambiance as, as the works uh, of Copeland, the Americana work. So it was a good substitute. And she felt O'Keefe would, would approve of that. It's got two, the two outer movements are quick and they're fairly short and they're for the entire ensemble. The second movement is a pizzicato movement and that is choreographed for uh, four of the five women. And then the third movement is by far the longest movement and the most dramatic. And that really is where the one woman comes to the fore and is partnered by all of the men in the ensemble. And we really see a, a character emerge from the, from the texture of the, of the ten dancers, if you will. It's, it's, this is a unique work. To me, it uh, harkens back to some mid-century choreography. I think of Agnes DeMille. Um, there are a lot of tableaus, just sort of still uh, pictures, if you will, in the ballet, and um, a very sculptural aspect to how the dancers move. And we're also going to see that in, in the crystal pipe piece, but in a different way but a beautiful way of holding the body, the upper body and the head and on. I, I love watching that and love seeing the dancers make these sort of idealized uh, pictures and movements, if you will. Um, it also is very bright and very sunny, this ballet. And uh, that is, I think, in contrast to many works we see made today. It's kind of well, one, amazing that it's snowing here on November 3rd. And, but it's, this is a great piece to see when you've come in out of the dark and the cold and the curtain goes up and the floor is white and it's sunny and we have sunny colors. And I think it's a, it's a nice way to start the evening. So uh, second time in the repertory for Her Door to the Sky and on its way on tour next July. Uh, first intermission then follows, and we come to Twyla Tharp's Afternoon Ball, which was made for us back in 2008. Uh, it was paired up with another piece she made at the same time called Opus 111, which was set, is set to a Brahms uh, piano quintet, uh, and is quite abstract. Afternoon Ball, I think, is a little bit of an anomaly for Tharp, at least in our repertory. She as she does with all her works, she just never talks about it, does a lot of research and a lot of reading and has a lot of often very disparate ideas in mind as she approaches a piece. She may be reading about current events, she may be reading something historical, she may be following a trend in popular art. Uh, she's very well read and stays 
really up on current events and news and what's going on where and what's interesting to people and so forth. These generally somehow make their way into her works, often not in overt ways that we can sort of pin down. You might be asking why I'm saying it then, but uh, that's what goes into uh, her works, in my experience, and in the uh, seeing the number of works we've prepared by her or that she's made for us. And Afternoon Ball is no different. She had a particular interest in, I think, what what is going on, say, with street performers or kids that spend a lot of their time out on the street? They may be homeless or they may just be spending a lot of their time on the street. Some have uh, are very sort of overt exhibitionists, if you will. Some have uh, are dealing with problems or issues that create certain behaviors. I think all of these things were interesting to Twyla. She lives in New York City. She's on the street a lot. She's seeing all kinds of behavior and activity. And I think she, at this particular time in 08, she was interested in that. Uh, I know when she was here with us, she was, uh, when we were going around the city, she was looking to see what was going on on the streets, and she was just very interested in that. And I think uh, was looking to find a way to not necessarily codify it, but comment a little bit or condense all of these things into a few characters uh, in this ballet that became Afternoon Ball. We have uh, two men and a woman who represent these sort of this commentary or musings, if you will, by Twyla Tharp. Um, okay, so we're going to leave that there. Then we're going to bring in something completely different. A couple of stories from the 19th century. Uh, Little Match Girl was, was uh, found its way into her ideas here. Uh, and it's not too far removed, I think, from, those, from these more contemporary ideas. The girl on the street who has nothing. She has the three matches. Uh, they keep her warm as long as they possibly can, and each one brings a different vision or a dream, and then she finally freezes to death. Uh, this story sort of informs kind of the narrative trajectory, if you will, of Afternoon Ball. I'm just going to leave that there. It becomes clear enough uh, as, as we go into the ballet. Uh, Match Girl was published in 1845, uh, written by Hans Christian Andersen, or at least he was the one that put the story to paper. Uh, another, you can see how all these things sort of become connected. It's very interesting to see how she pulls disparate ideas together. Uh, another trend in early 19th century, uh, concurrent with this publication of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Match Girl, is the Biedermeier period. So Twyla introduces, about midway through the ballet, a couple in period dress, or an evocation of period dress, early 19th century dress, that she refers to as the Biedermeier couple. Uh, completely removed from this, these contemporary kids, if you will, in their jeans and a flannel shirt and vest and, and crazy hair and makeup. And uh, here's this couple in brown, very somber colors, and they move through the stage. And I think it's one giving context or a place for the idea of the little match girl to fit in. Um, there is a coming together of these two worlds, this, the Biedermeyer couple and the, uh, 
these contemporary kids, if you will, as we move through the ballet. I'm trying to think how to link this together for you. And I kind of actually don't want to link it together for you. Twyla Tharp probably would already think I've said way too much. But um, I'm just I'm giving a little context. It's interesting when um, I'm usually charged with writing program notes unless they're provided by the choreographer, for which I'm always grateful when they are. Uh, uh, you can read Crystal Pite's extensive notes about plot point in the program, which I think are very useful. Twyla, on the other hand, uh, said that I could write about the music if I wanted to like three sentences. So that's, that's what uh, we originally had. She since has updated her website and uh, wrote a little bit about, uh, I think she wrote it, about her ideas about this piece. So I think that we've substituted that in the Encore program. So a little more, uh, giving you a little more info. But I think what you, uh, I think you just need to come at this ballet, maybe knowing a little bit of that context and then you just have to see it. You just have to see how she puts these sort of two worlds together and, and the kind of relationship she builds within this trio of the one woman and the two men and then how uh, the one who represents the little match girl finally intersects with this sort of uh, idealized couple from the past, if you will. I'm going to leave it there, okay? <laughs> so that is afternoon ball. Then we come to plot point. Plot point's our third piece. Uh, this was made a few years ago by Crystal Pite on Netherlands Dance Theater. And uh, we've been fortunate to have some interviews published by Crystal about Plot Point. There's one in Seattle Times as a preview, but there's also one on our blog page on our PMB website. She talks about making this for Netherlands Dance Theater. And also last night at our dress rehearsal chat, she talked to Peter Bowl about when she creates a new work, usually the idea, she tries to challenge herself to ch select an idea or a topic that she feels is a little bit out of her reach, uh, that's challenging to her and uh, helps her to sort of strive toward uh, expressing that, but also along the way, representing it in some new way and stretching herself and her company or whichever company she's working with. She said that was definitely the case with Plot Point, but when she made it for Netherlands Dance Theater, she felt like she was always still reaching for it at the time. She explained that when she makes works for her own company, Kid Pivot, she'll take about two years to make a work. When she has to make a work for a company like ours or Netherlands Dance Theater, it's going to be a matter of weeks. You come in for six weeks, it's kind of a luxury. Four weeks is probably standard. Three weeks, not uncommon. So you really have to come in and are expected to, to deliver a lot. So it's a little bit of a rat race to get something on stage. She's very... Uh, Crystal is involved in every aspect of the production, not only the choreography, but very involved with the lighting, scenic design, costumes, every element. They are delegated in one sense to her design team, but she is very hands-on. So you can just think of the amount of time that it would take to develop a piece. And her pieces have a lot of complex ideas behind them, as you'll see simply by reading the notes that she provided for Plot Point. So let me get to that. I mean, I'm, everything I share, I think she said already, so it's good. Uh, I think it's good, good to go and, and, and to be on the record. Uh, her interests, and they often are outside dance, and she ends up trying to find a way to, to express them in dance or in movement. 
she was interested in this case in the idea of screenplay and uh, the idea of story itself, not a story, but story, why we need it, what we find fascinating about it, and what are the sort of crux points of the stories that have become what she refers to as tropes or common themes that as soon as we see them, our sort of common experience allows us to identify them right away. Uh, and she refers to these as plot points. These are the plot points. Okay, that's one layer. She's also interested in sort of three-act structure. What In a three-act structure of a theatrical work, what happens in that first act? What generally happens in that second act? What happens in that third act? What are the plot points that carry us through the entire three acts and also through each act itself? So it's, it's a whole. So when an intermission comes, we're at a satisfactory point that that all of us together as a community say, okay, we're at the right place here in our three-act structure because we're so familiar with it that we know what we, what we need to have happen at a particular point. Finally, uh, ending you know, with a resolution of some sort at the end of that third act. Then she said she did what you're never supposed to do, and that is storyboard before she had a story. And in essence, there's not a story anyway. And she also built a maquette, and, and in the maquette, uh, she referred to the little uh, sort of figures, the little plastic figures of people that you'll put in a maquette of a stage design to give you some sense of scale. And she realized she really liked what those little people could express. They're, they're faceless, they may be all white or green or something, but the way their bodies are held, they express certain things. And she was really intrigued with that idea. And she wanted to replicate those in this work. And she refers to these uh, characters as replicas. So you'll see how we've listed the characters in plot point. And we have you know, Mrs. Jones and Mr. Jones, Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith, just stock names. Uh, and uh, Fernando and Celia are two characters, and then they each have a replica. She wanted the replicas in, in this work to move in a very static way, like in ways you could position those little maquette figures. So they move with a sort of stop-motion sort of action, uh, and they just, in a sort of connect-the-dots way, show us the, the basics of these plot points and these plot elements. I hope you're staying with me. Each of those replicas has a real-life fleshed-out character who's wearing regular clothes, and we can see their faces. The replicas are, are covered, and they move in a more lyrical way, a rounder way, a flesh-and-blood flesh kind of way. You'll see these characters on stage with their replica character, Sometimes they move together in unison, but you can see the difference. Uh, sometimes the replica characters make the action happen and their real-life character will respond. Uh, other times the replica character forces the real-life character to respond. Are you just thinking what's going on by now? Okay. All right, so here's what happens. When this ballet starts, I really want to just call it movement theater. 
we have a prelude, and the prelude takes us through the three acts by way of projection. Act one, and then a variety of plot points will be projected for us. Then act two, and a, a variety of plot points like the inciting incident or the climax or the resolution, act three. And so we get a quick prelude beforehand, which is great. It's like, okay, this is what's going to happen in this piece. And then we go back and we start going through the various plot points. Um, all of this is sort of within the framework of a sort of mid-century sort of Dick Tracy type of genre, if you will, Perry Mason, intrigue, espionage, uh, the gangster, the thugs, um, a sort of Humphrey Bogart type feel. And I think we've probably all heard that the score for this is Bernard Herrmann's uh, score for Psycho, but this is not si the Psycho story. Uh, it's just the music from Psycho. And uh, Sandy, you had asked last night, did this music, because it's so it was written for a film, so very closely tied to that narrative, did it force Crystal to go a certain way with her narrative? And she thought, ultimately, no. And yet, it is very suspenseful music. It's driving music. Um, it makes us wonder what's going to happen next or be on the edge of our seats, which works really well for um, hitting us with all these plot points in close succession. There are a couple storylines, if you will, that go along here. There is a storyline of infidelity involving two couples and a birthday party. There is a storyline of uh, a briefcase full of cash. Um, there are a couple of thugs involved and so forth. There's a wooded forest with flashlights at night. Um, interspersed with the psycho score is a what Crystal refers to as a sound design by Owen Belton. Owen also composed the score for Emergence that we've heard and we will, we will see again later this year. This is like a sound, sound effect score that you'd have for a film. Uh, when people walk down the hall and you hear the footsteps or they open the briefcase and you hear the clicking, uh, all of this is magnified in the sound design by Owen Belton for us and interspersed and sometimes overlapping with Bernard Herrmann's score for Psycho, which is a string score, by the way. I think it's gorgeous. Who'd have thunk? Um, you know, when you, when you isolate the score as away from the movie, Crystal said actually she's never been able to watch the movie all the way through. She's not a fan of the slasher genre that it inspired. Uh, so uh, this is an evening of disparate ideas coming together into these works. Uh, more, uh, more clear, if you will, obvious, uh, I'd say, in the early work, Her Door to the Sky, moving into Tharp's variety of ideas, then moving into Crystal Pite's really uh, total theatrical experience of the sound, the movement, the variety of movement, uh, the lighting, the score, and so forth. Simply in a quest, can these ideas be expressed in movement? Uh, fascinating. Sort of, for me, unlike anything I've ever seen, particularly with, with plot point, and uh, the idea of no story, but story, and the different ways of the dancers moving, 
and uh, the ex expressivity of these replica characters, which I haven't said, head to toe in white. Uh, white trench coat, white heels, white fedora, white mask on the face. We can't see them, and yet they tell us so much, uh, paired up with their sort of real-life counterpart. So uh, fascinating. So it's about a 47-minute work for Netherlands Dance Theatre. It's now about a 35-minute work. Uh, Crystal's done some editing, a little bit of adding, cutting, moving, and so forth. And I uh, said she really relished the opportunity to return to this work. And uh, we've felt great to be uh, part of this uh, collaborative process. Uh, Crystal's very collaborative in the studio. She really knows what she wants, but she absolutely works with the dancer. There's never that moment of uh, showing doubt that the dancer can't achieve what she's, what she's asking for. She finds a way to express it, and she works with the dancer, and they, they give her what she's asking for. And it's, uh, so it's as much what she's asking for as it is what they're able to do and, and working together in that way. And I think the outcome is very positive and it is magnified by that kind of collaboration. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. You, gotta, you just have to see it. Come back after the performance. We have the Q&A down here with Peter Bull and Leah Merchant. Leah will be in plot point uh, tonight. She also dances her door to the sky in alternating casts. So she'll be a great person to talk to about uh, both of those pieces. And uh, Peter definitely will be able to comment on afternoon ball as well. So let, we have a couple minutes if there are any questions. Yes, please. It is, uh, and you kind of got me because I should have researched it more. Because I know the question is about the Biedermeyer period, and I know it is furniture too. I can say, oh, that's Biedermeyer. 1815 to what, mm, 40s, 50s, and so forth. But the aesthetic of Biedermeyer, someone else is going to have to fill me in on that. Um, so, yeah, well, surprise. Biedermeyer mm. was a homey kind of, it's a, it's, 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 um, it's kind of nutcracker, yeah. I mean, it's furniture for the home, for sure. And it's a home, a, an idea of home where you're there, it's your place, you feel comfortable there, there's a certain amount of, um, it's comfortable without being opulent. We look at it today and because it has a high level of detail, we think it's really yeah. like, swaying, which it was, but not ornately so. This is just perfect. It is. It's perfect. The idea of uh, like Higa, of home and a comfortable home. Uh, do I say it wrong? Yeah. And it makes sense because that is exactly what these three characters are lacking in, 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 in the piece. That is exactly what they're lacking. And that is exactly what that time period, what that idea, that concept offered that is lacking. Uh, that is perfect. Thank you for asking that. That is just great because that really helps. And I'm not surprised that it's so connected. I would expect nothing less of Twyla's way of putting things together. That's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, please. So 
so the comment about plot point, having watched the live stream of our rehearsal, there's a lot of counting and, and of the beats and the movements. And there really is, it's, it's very uh, particular, especially for the replica characters that move with a lot of uh, physical isolation, which I'm not able to do. Um, less count, much less counting in the Twilight Tharp, which has stretches of improvisatory movement where the dancers are deciding what they do within a certain set of parameters. But there are probably a certain, you know, there's probably a certain number of counts that you improvise. So <laughs> yes and no. Uh, a little, I think, less counting in the uh, Lang once the dancers know it. Because the sweep of the, the music and the accessibility of the sort of melodic lines in the music will let them let go of the counts and just sort of wed the movements to the music as they're hearing hearing the melody and the sort of rhythmic framework. And it all, every dance is different and every choreographer is different too. Some really don't want counting, but sometimes dancers add counts anyway because it just helps you give, get that structure, especially while you're learning. Some say there are ballets, they will always count just because they're really complicated, like Balanchine's Agon, which has, you know, three and then 17 and then two 12s and a 14. and it's, you know, it's very uh, rigorous that way. But yes, definitely I think in, in plot point, lots of counting. And each dancer is going to be different. Some are able to, to uh, some prefer to move away from that in their mind. Others uh, will s stay with it. Even in the performance, it will be part of what's going on in their, in their mind as they're performing. So thanks for that. One more, sure. Oh, thanks for asking. And we'll talk about this as we go through the year. It's the Paris tour. We're part of a festival called Les Etés de la Danse. And the presenters, and as often the case with touring, the presenter, the person who's bringing us there, weighs in quite a bit on the repertory. Um, they may ask for particular things right up front, or we may suggest uh, sending, and we send them complete films of everything. And then it's sort of a, a collaboration. Um, they were not interested in Balanchine from us because New York City Ballet is a regular uh, guest on that festival and uh, is, is the house of Balanchine. And so we are bringing more contemporary works, some that were made for us, like Her Door to the Sky, uh, Waiting at the Station by Twyla Tharp is going to go. But we'll do the European premiere, I think, at least the Paris premiere of Emergence which was not made for us. It was made for National Ballet of Canada, but we brought it to New York. We'll take it to Paris. So it's a variety of things. We have two complete programs of four ballets each, and then we're participating in a uh, festival dedicated to uh, Jerome Robbins' works because his centenary is in 2018. So we'll be with uh, uh, several other companies on a couple of programs. So. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, there's a new theater just outside of the center of Paris. But what we're going to do is offer three Paris previews in June over at the Phelps Center where we will uh, have open rehearsals of the Paris repertory and give information about the tour so that everyone here can, can see what we're bringing and, and in a sense participate in it. Sure. We're going to be in Paris in July, so what are your dates? Our dates are... It's right around the end, last days of June, 28, 29, through July 7. 
So, yeah, we can give you the info. Email me. Okay. All right, we're past time. So I'm so glad you're here. Uh, please let me know what you think of the ballets. Come down afterwards to the Q&A. All right, have a good time. Thank you.